Hello and welcome to the Ethics of Socially Disruptive Technologies podcast, where we showcase some of the latest research in the ethics of technology. I'm your host, Christy Glassen, and today I will be talking to Ben Hofbauer about solar geoengineering. Welcome, Ben. Hi, everybody. Great to be here. We will also be talking about your, uh, one of your research papers on geoengineering and techno-moral change. But before we get to that, let's uh, just look a little bit at your background. You have a background in political, economic, and legal philosophy. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah, I did a, a, a double degree, basically, in the University of Graz and the University of Bochum in Germany on those subjects. Yeah. Okay. And right now, you are part of the Estet Consortium. You're a PhD candidate. What is your topic broadly about uh, for the next couple of years? Right. So my project is focused on solar geoengineering, specifically stratospheric aerosol injection, which I'm sure we're going to um, get into a bit, and the normative uncertainties. So kind of the, 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 the things we don't know about it. So that's what I'm looking into. Okay. Well, there's a lot of things I don't know about it. So that, <laughs> that's a good start. Um, I also heard through the grapevine that you uh, just got back from, from the United States. What were you doing there? Right. Yeah. So actually, um, there, we had a conference on the, that was called the GETS conference. So the governance of emerging um, technologies. And we were basically, there was a small group of, of um, TU Delft researchers and uh, Dutch researchers in the ethics of technology. They're presenting their work. And as part of that, I was talking about um, basically the ethics and governance of solar geoengineering. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that sounds that sounds quite interesting. Um, and then I think the very obvious question, right? Why are you interested in climate technologies specifically? Yes, that is that is of course the very obvious question. I yeah. Agree. Yeah. So yeah, interestingly, I started this in my the interest for for um, climate engineering technologies or geoengineering technologies started in my master's program because my my MA thesis was already on geoengineering. And yeah, it was, um, I mean, it was somewhere between hope and despair, I guess, that I decided to, to look into this. Um, so I was always very interested, worried, I don't know what you call it, uh, about climate change. And um, climate engineering technology seemed like, on the one hand, such a ludicrous thing to even consider. And on the other hand, such an important thing to consider, given that we're somewhere between a rock and a hard place right now with regards to, to climate change, right? And so I thought, all right, I'm not good at maths and I suck at any kind of engineering and empirical research, but I could, you know, give two cents about the ethics of the whole thing. So so that's kind of where I'm coming from, yeah. Okay, and right now, where are you between hope and despair on this, <laughs> <laughs> on this seesaw? Right. Uh, well, I mean, I think with climate change, there's always this, you, you always have to walk the line between, on the one hand, trying to keep up hope, because climate doom, I think, is a problematic perception of the way the world is going in and of itself. At the same time, I think there's something such as toxic hope or toxic positivity and kind of assuming it's all going to be fine, because for many people on the globe, of course, it is already very much not fine, right? They're very much suffering, and it's already causing a lot of hurt and pain. 
um, also the inaction taken um, by the global north. So I do think um, that, yeah, you, you should be hopeful so as to not lose the impetus for action, but you should not kit yourself into kind of seeing the situation um, better than it actually is. That's 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 where I'm trying to keep the balance, I guess. But, you know, it's a daily change. Okay. I mean, I, I feel similar about a lot of things that, yeah, you, that you just said. Um, so you, the, the research paper that I read, um, you speak about stratospheric aerosol injection. Can you tell me a little bit about, a little bit more about that? Is it something that already exists? Uh, what is it? Yeah, yeah, sure. No, so um, uh, maybe in general, uh, solar geoengineering is the whole idea of um, trying to actively intervene in the climate system by reducing the amount of incoming sunlight through all kinds of different means, right? And one way of doing that is through stratospheric aerosol injection. So as the name kind of implies a little bit, the idea is to spray um, aerosols, in, very often sulfates, but there's, there's different approaches into the stratosphere, which in turn would scatter like a minimal amount of incoming sunlight, which would cool the planet a little bit effectively what it would do in terms of or, or the modeling suggests that it would do is reduce the rate of warming so it wouldn't actually cool the planet in that sense but we would just experience a lower rate of warming and of course the increased rate of warming is one of the main drivers for climate catastrophes and extreme weather events right so the idea behind it is that we could reduce the the, the graver impacts such as extreme droughts um heats uh floods of climate change through the introduction of this technology. However, importantly, because you, you asked whether this already exists, it doesn't. So basically, it's just based on modeling right now. Um, the, the idea has been around for, for quite a long time. I believe it was in the 1970s, the first time that this was um, proposed, or even before that uh, in, in the U.S., uh, through like crazy means, there's actually some, this might be a funny anecdote, though they, I think, I, I don't believe, I don't remember the administration, but it was somewhere in the 60s or 70s that a climate researcher proposed placing um, ping pong balls into the, into the oceans, the global oceans, in order to increase their reflectivity. So that would be like the origins of, of solar geoengineering. Okay. But uh, the, the, basically now the idea is um, inspired by volcanic eruptions. So we know from empirical data that volcanic eruptions, of course, they blow out a lot of dirt and dust and sulfates into the stratosphere. And then we could um, infer from the data that usually the years after these eruptions, for example, Mount Pinatubo, and I believe it's 1991, um, were a lot cooler than predicted. And that goes back to, um, to, to how they cooled down or reflected some of the incoming sunlight, basically. And that's kind of why some researchers, scholars think that this could be a way, one partial way of dealing with climate change. Partial is very important term. Here. Okay. Well, just going back to your, your comment about the hope and the despair, should this fill us with hope or despair? Because, <laughs> yeah. of, course, of course, on the one hand, it's a, it's a way to mitigate some of the climate change that we've been seeing. And on the other hand, um, don't you think that would kind of make people say, hey, let's let's give up this fight. We found a solution. Yeah. What do you, I know we're getting deep. We will get more into this in your paper as well. But 
but what do you think about should we be hopeful or should we be no, no I, think, I think this is this is a very nice point actually um and and it's the i mean it's one of the burning questions right now that people have raised numerous times uh, with regards to to solar geoengineering is will it re lead to the situation of um, moral hazard, right? Uh, so some scholars have, have said that the problem with something like solar geo is that in the end, if we put forth this solution and say oh, this partial solution, very important again, the small partial solution for a much bigger climate portfolio that needs uh, carbon dioxide reduction, that needs decarbonization on a deep fundamental level, right? And net zero emissions. If we put this forth, then people will be like, well, I mean, you know, now we have the solution. So why why do we even bother with with, you know, why, why does it matter that I try, drive my truck and why does it matter that we fly around the globe all the time? Right. It doesn't I mean, we have this thing now. So, you know, we have techno fixed it, which is another term that comes up often in that debate. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, of course, this is a main criticism. I mean, I would say. Just that risk alone doesn't justify um, the stark opposition against solar geoengineering, but it is something to keep in mind. And maybe, um, as far as I know, maybe there's there's new data out there, but the most recent research in terms of um, empirical research as actually asking people, um, so telling them about solar geoengineering and then seeing whether that increases or decreases their willingness to engage in, in climate mitigation, it usually increases the individual uh, motivation to do something about climate change because many people are like, oh, damn, we are we are pretty far off here when it comes to that when people are actually considering these kinds of interventions, right? And that's kind of my underlying um, thought process here is that yeah, maybe it could also motivate people to do more because we realize that we really are in a very dire situation. Yeah, that's quite interesting because I would have thought the opposite, that people would see these kind of, you know, quite extreme kind of technologies uh, trying to mitigate climate change. And that would make them just feel more relaxed that something's happening. Now, another question I had for you, we are both in this, this consortium focusing on disruptive technologies. This is a term that we hear a lot. And what what would make this kind of um, solar radiation technologies, what do you think makes it disruptive? In what sense is it disruptive, you think? Right. Um, this is this is the, the golden question for our um, research project, I guess. Yeah. So yeah. Um, lovely. Yeah, well, I would argue there's there's many ways that it can be disruptive, right? So one one thing that I like to explore on a more conceptual level is how does the introduction introduction of something like solar geoengineering change or disrupt our perception of nature, right? Mm -hmm. Because I mean, uh, from a more traditional Western kind of um, enlightenment perception of nature as this passive object that needs to be studied and that we look at in order to understand order or in order to understand the, the nature of things basically, right? as opposed to nature, something that we actively engage in, something like earth stewardship, right? This more recent, recent perception, or maybe nature as something that needs to be protected, right? Um, nature that has its own value and that for that very reason needs to, and that it actually merits and necessitates protection, right? Because this is also a, rather a recent thing that has come up due to environmental degradation, of course, that actually we might be losing nature, whatever that is. 
So there's, there's a lot of like conceptual issues come in when we talk about something like solar geoengineering, because of course now we are actively and intentionally dealing um, and trying to manipulate the climate system, which is such a vast, complex, chaotic system that we don't really understand, that it really raises the question, well, how far can we take this? And what does this do to our conceptions of nature and to our value, the the way that we value nature? So I think that's like the conceptual aspect Um, that, of course, also plays into the, the societal disruption that you were kind of hinting at earlier when you were talking about something like moral hazard where you really see that um, the nature is being disrupted through the process of introducing a new technology. And that directly relates to how society reacts to those changes, right? How society reacts to something like climate change. So, for example, the institutionalization of this kind of research or the institutionalization of doing something against climate change are, of course, all reactions towards this kind of also conceptual change of nature. And that's that's where I would see like a very broad interpretation of conceptual disruption. But there's there's more specific ways to get into this. Yeah, I, I like that question because it also gives me the opportunity to hear what other people are saying. So it helps me reflect also on my own research and, and how that could be seen as as disruptive. So let's let's get into your research paper a bit more. Um, your research paper is titled Techno-Moral Change Through Solar uh, Geoengineering, How Geoengineering Challenges Sustainability. Now, one of the first things I, I wanted to know, um, Techno-moral change is also one of those things that we hear a whole lot about um, in the field of ethics or philosophy of technology. Um, it's quite prominent. How would you how would you define it? How do you would you describe it? Because I know there's a lot of different views on techno-moral change. Right. Well, I was inspired um, really by by um, the the early works of of Coilarts and colleagues and um, Boning and and Saling Swiestra talking about how technology and the introduction of new and emerging technologies can shift societal values, right? Can have an effect on, on what Swierster calls um, these, these moral force fields, right? I thought that was actually a fascinating observation to make, to understand um, that technology isn't just a tool, it really is a medium through which we look at the world, right? And through which we conceptualize the world and for which we give meaning and value to, to our surrounding. And that way, I think technomoral change represents that more fundamental impact that technology has moving beyond this kind of technology as a tool and rather technology as a means of, of um, moral expression almost. So, so that, that's really what fascinated me about the whole approach. And I guess that would be kind of my, my, um, ad hoc description or definition of technomoral change. I don't know whether that's sufficient, though. I, I think that's good. One question just on that. Can you maybe elaborate on this idea of the force field? Oh, yeah, or, definitely. Yes, yeah. yes. This is like a, a reoccurring thing also with I know people in technomoral change. So I will give my best impression okay. of what it means. Well, I, I the way I understand it is that basically um, societal norms and values are all always interconnected, right? They never appear in a vacuum. The idea of liberty is connected to the idea of justice, is connected to the idea of well-being, right? It's not just one, it's not just about liberty. 
or our autonomy. All, all of these values are, are always interrelated because my liberty um, ends where yours begins. And, you know, we have all of these kinds of ways of, 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 of relating to these different norms and values. And I think that the force field really shows because we, we live in, 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 in certain societies, we have this kind of pluralism of values. And I would argue probably most um, societies, there is always different perspectives on what the good life entails. And we try to, to kind of deal with these differences, right? Nowadays, we sometimes try to deal with them through democratic means, for example. But um, crucially, they might be opposing, right? I use the example in the paper um, of this kind of Christian Catholic morality and the, the secularized feminist morality having being very oppositional with regards to, example, the the, the, this this very sexist patriarchal value of chastity, right? And you, they are obviously not compatible, and the, their realization is not compatible. The way that you know feminism would want to make put away with that value, whereas Catholic morality would want to uphold that value. And the introduction of the of the um, contraceptive pill gave rise to or, or allowed a push for for feminist for stronger feminist um, values and convictions because it allowed for the practical um, undermining of the value of chastity because there was no longer this problematic outcome of potentially becoming pregnant which of course would be is was very difficult for for many women and we see this issue um, rising again right now in the in the US for example so you really see how technology can undermine certain practices and change the way we look at something like chastity. We look at something like um, casual sex, right? And how that might really change our values in the process because it can become destigmatized. At the same time, I think it's important here to point out that just because of the introduction of the technology, first of all, it that doesn't produce the change, but there are actors of change and agents and people who put their lives at risk in order to achieve these these changes and of course that the technology is always a double-edged sword in the sense that it might also put more pressure and blame onto the women involved in any kind of sexual engagement for them to take care rather than for the men to make sure that they don't cause pregnancies right so there's like there's there's again a weighing and again moral force fields coming together that might be incompatible and I think the crucial aspect of technomoral change is pointing out um, and highlighting the impact that technology has on morality. Yeah, I one of the interesting things that I think we could speak about maybe next time is this uh, religious discourse and also the way that that the planet is portrayed and nature is portrayed also in the the religious discourse, but I'm trying not to get off of topic. I would love that though. Yeah, but, my favorite yeah, subject. Yeah. Yeah. That is definitely something we can talk some more about. I have another question and I don't know if this one actually has an answer, right? But why is a technology like solar radiation management seen as something that is maybe quite disruptive and has the possibility to bring about moral change where you might find other you know, examples of technologies that that kind of help towards the f- the fight against climate change. So, for instance, let's say the you know the the solar panels on my on my roof. You know, they don't elicit the same kind of reaction. What is it about this technology specifically that you think is is getting people so up in arms? Um, right. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, this is a great question and you, it, it's, it has numerous answers as so, so often. Uh, I don't know which one is the right one. I think on the one hand, there is a very justified kind of um, alienation almost to the idea of what are we actually doing here? Like, what are you proposing um, that we, we haven't, we, we, we engage in this, again, system that we don't understand, the climate system that we barely understand to such a degree. Like this is very, I think that a lot of people feel um, maybe not disgust, but the sense of people are being very hubristic. You know, they see, they imagine a scientist in their in their um, white coat playing God, you know, the kind of um, Dr. Frankenstein's saying we can take over control and we can now, you know, just dial up or down the climate the way that we like it. And so there is a sense of hubris, which I would argue is not for 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 the reasons of ignorance, but is justified in terms of precaution, because it is true. We don't really know what's going to happen. Right. One of the crucial issues with with solar geoengineering and, and SAIs particularly is that we don't know the impacts that it will have. Um, I so there is a justified sense of, um, yeah, I, I will call it alienation for lack of a better term with how could we, you know, how did we get here? Basically, that's that's the kind of question. And why are people seriously considering this? So this is the one thing. However, and this is why um, I still think we need to talk about the, this kind of um, technology climate change brings us into the same situation, right? We don't really know what's going to happen. We, we're, we're, we don't really know the, 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 the extent of the carbon forcing. So we don't really know how much warming the current amount of atmospheric carbon would actually lead to. We don't know whether we have reached certain climate tipping points. Um, I think, especially in the Arctic regions, it seems that we have. So there's not really any coming back. Uh, so you know, once the sea levels start rising to that degree, once you have more and more extreme weather events and it becomes more and more difficult to actually inhabit the planet, which many people, again, in the global south are already facing, many um, vulnerable communities are already facing, also due to inaction, you start to see that we really need to consider these things also from in terms of justice. So why, again, to come back to your original question, why it elicits this response, I think for a natural and actually healthy kind of awareness and a sense of precaution, because it is unprecedented. I, I do not think it's just another thing that we're doing. I don't, I don't agree with that. Nonetheless, I think we are in a position where we cannot afford to not also look into these kinds of, again, partial solutions. Yeah. As you know, I'm quite interested in this whole discourse between the global north and the global south. And do I understand it correctly that most of these technologies would be implemented in not in the global north, of course, where where would they have the biggest impact? And also, I think one of the things that that makes it in my mind quite disruptive is because the technology, it seems to me, is this high-tech solution that a small group of people um, have access to, but the communities that would probably be most affected by them don't really have much of a say, um, that, that is quite problematic. And, and I wonder, is there really room for these uh, communities to have a say in this technology? Do they, do they have any kind of power in this discourse? Uh, what, what would your views on that be? Yeah, no, these, these are 
like crucial questions when it comes to the justice of the whole situation. Mm. And it is um, infamously very difficult in terms of global governance. So um, to, to put it back to the basics, the central issue with, with Solar Geo and justice is that it is its implementation is by nature global. So you can't mm. do stratospheric aerosol injection on a regional level because the idea is to reduce global warming, mm. right? So you... Yeah. You would, um, the, 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 it would probably be sprayed somewhere in, I mean, there's different, um, I don't know it off the top of my mind now, but there's different um, proposals where to spray the, the, the aerosols. But the idea is that through the scattering in the stratosphere, it would slowly cover the entire globe, right? So that's, that's, the, that's the main main idea. I mean, there's other regional technologies, but um, stratospheric aerosol injection is inherently global in its application. And that, of course, raises all of the justice issues that you have just implied or explicitly mentioned. One is, is democratic governance of this even possible? Like, what would that look like, right? Would you have a body like the UN kind of unanimously decide how much we should cool the globe? Is that realistic? And of course, the question is, well, you could have that little body, but in the end, you know, it's going to be the US and China calling the shots. So that's kind of the... The power imbalances are real and they're there, basically. And, and the big issue with solar geoengineering is the question, how do we account for those? And can we account for those, right? So, so this is one aspect. I mean, the, when it comes to... But this is, of course, deployment. And there is still... I am, I'm, importantly, not arguing that we should be engaging in deployment, right? My point is rather we should look at to how can we ethically research this proposal, mm -hmm. And here, I do think that there's opportunities also to include um, marginalized communities or the global south, also indigenous communities who are, of course, suffering but understanding um, climate change very well, right? But they're suffering a lot from it at the same time. So there's they, they, they many indigenous communities have a strong understanding of what's going on because they often understand the, the, the local impacts very well. And so the question here would be, how can um, these people be involved in a research process, have their own actually research, be not just have a seat at the table when it comes to decision making, but actually having a place in the lab that they themselves have have made. Right. It's not about, you know, again, some some white savior um, scientist handing out, oh, you can you can become part of my research. That shouldn't be the ideal. The ideal should be. That um, because everybody has stakes in this, everybody is involved in the research of this, right? And that would, and there are pushes from the from the solar geoengineering community to to build basically the infrastructure and the resources needed to have a broad engagement of of a global community and not just some global north um, researchers talking and disputing solar geoengineering as it is the case right now, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely agree with that. Uh, there's one you said just now in your answer. You said, "What would that look like?" Right? You, you, you asked that question, and in the paper as well, there's a lot of this looking forward. You write societies are based on imaginaries that project ways of living from the present into the future. Okay, and you write that this that this idea of imagining is quite important. What do you think the ideal scenario would look like if you had to do the futuring? <laughs> so coming back to my initial statement, maybe 
a guy like me again, like a uh, 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 um, end of twenties, almost thirty, um, white dude, European should not be calling the shots on how the future should look like. So I will make that disclaimer first. Um, yep. But then I will say, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know whether I can. I, again, I don't feel comfortable in building an ideal future. But I do think there's a lot of wrongs that we can focus on to right in the future, right? So I, I, I see taking up a lot more responsibility and having systemic change. I mean, I do. I'm a strong, um, strong supporter of very structural and systemic changes in in the current way of living that we find. Uh, so, so that would be my very vague answer uh, to to your ideal question. Does does that work? You can push me on this. That's fine. Uh it works, but I think because one of the, the other questions I had is you mentioned this idea of future generations um, a couple of times, and, and that's something I'm interested in, where, you know, I also wonder, so do we have some kind of moral obligation or duty towards them? Even even if you are a white European dude, you know, what, what kind of duty do you have to, to these coming generations um, mm -hmm. to, yeah. you know, no, no. I mean, at the same time, right? I can't buy out or cop out of my responsibility. Also, with regards to that, right? Obviously. Yeah. So, so I I agree with that, and I would say um, we do have a, a a responsibility for future generations as well. So the the I mean, obviously, it's not a very contentious argument that I'm making here, right? But I do think we have an obligation to try and leave behind a livable world, maybe even a better world, politically speaking, even if environmentally speaking. A better world would probably be difficult, at least for the next couple of hundred years, because we have done a great job at messing that up, right? But we can put um, political movements into motion and support the right kind of actors that will bring about changes on a societal level that will ultimately, the way that, you know, initial bad changes on a societal level two, three hundred years ago with the beginning of imperialism and all of that and industrialization have led to these very bad outcomes now, Maybe if we change society for the better on a political level now, in a couple of hundred years, future generations can reap the benefits of that. So I guess there's the kind of responsibility without having to get into issues of non-identity problem. That's where I would, where I would place that. Yeah. Yeah, it it kind of reminds me of the whole, you know, Francis Fukuyama's end of history kind of arguments where. You know, this the the trajectory that we thought we were on ethically and politically seems to not be <laughs> heading in the direction that no. we are. So, so I like that there's this kind of almost not a reckoning, but a, a kind of realization that, hey, everything isn't just getting better uh, because of because of all these technologies. And but that's once again a, another conversation. Let's let's get back to your paper again. You used these two concepts of the norm of sustainability and the value of nature, right? How do those two things interrelate? Because you've got a quite a unique understanding of these two, two concepts. What do you mean by them? Yes, I, I take this as a charitable reading that you call it unique. <laughs> Um, but it's not the first time I heard this, and this is fair. So uh, for me, it was basically an exploration of trying to connect sustainability and nature, right? And so the way that I did this, and this could, of course, be argued against, but my, my position in the paper, at least, is to say, 
sustainability is kind of this norm that we try to follow in order to to um, achieve the value of nature, if that makes any sense. So if nature has any kind of value or is, is valuable in any way, shape or form, nature as being the non-human in this case, then we need to act sustainably. So that's kind of, that was the, and, and sustainable as a norm just means the way that we practice our everyday lives. The, the, a, a car can be normed to be sustainable by, you know, maybe having zero emissions, I don't know, or um, a way of life can be sustainable or unsustainable. So that's kind of how I try to square the two. Uh, and yeah, uh, but, but I guess there's a lot to discuss about that. So, so I'm happy to do that. Yeah, I'm. I mean, this whole idea of sustainability, I I kind of struggle with myself as well because I think sometimes I'm I'm a bit more nihilistic, um, and I and I wonder is sustainability really you know something that we should be aiming towards, or should we kind of let things go the way they are going and wait wait you know for nature to start afresh? So yeah. No, I, I, I actually like that. And um, um, if I can come in here, there's a, there, there is the debate whether sustainability is something natural or it is something human. I mean, I would argue if we agree to that distinction, right, I would argue that sustainability is very much an artificial concept because I don't think that nature, the way nature develops is in any kind of way sustainable. Like I am not a big fan of this idea of natural balance and cyclical appearances because if we look back into the history of nature before human beings ever um, wandered the planet you see that you know there was constant tipping points or constant but tipping points happen yeah. right with the cyanobacteria all of a sudden the surface of the earth changed and then you had like you, you had all kinds of extinctions right i mean now we're also an extinction caused by us but before that, we had a couple of other phases of extinction, which is clearly like not a sign of sustainability, right? Like, of course, yes. nature recovered, whatever that means. But there is no natural balance in that sense. And so I think there is like a to, to, to bring it back to the societal issue when we talk about sustainability, right? There can be this idea of deriving some kind of um, balance and order from nature that we should follow. And I don't buy into that. So sustainability with that regard, I am not a big fan of. However, I do think that there is a way of understanding sustainability as reducing the impact, the negative environmental impact that we have in terms of justice. And on a political, again, I usually argue from a political perspective and saying, okay, am I ruining um, somebody else's livelihood through my actions, right? And right now this is happening, of course, through implicit exploitation of, of many people with me buying a laptop, for example, right? This is one aspect, but also am I ruining ecosystems, right? I do believe that, that nature, that animals, that plants around us have some kind of value. I don't know whether you can call it a right. That's a debate that I'm not qualified to talk about, but... I would at least say that we shouldn't just cause unnecessary harm in that regard, not because there is a natural balance, though, just because those are organisms who also have a right to live, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 And that actually clarifies a lot of the questions that I had about what you mean by sustainability. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, we're getting to the end now. One more uh, thing that I wanted to speak about. So in your in your paper, so we've already spoken about this idea of the techno-moral imagination. 
but you you give us you give two examples of uh, techno moral vignettes, entrenchment and transformation as kind of almost options of things that we can imagine. Can you can you explain those two? What you mean by those? Yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean, the, I, I tried to choose two really polarizing opposites, right? By by yeah. with the two, and the idea was, okay, what kind of impact, what kind of moral impact can solar geoengineering have, uh, specifically SAI? And my argument was, well, there's two ways of looking at it. If we take these two polarizing aspects, because polarizing usually helps to really outline the, the the moral, the underlying values in a very distinct and clear manner. So on the one hand, I followed this worry that um, stratospheric aerosol injection would lead to the entrenchment of current um, power structures, right? So I, I, I don't know, I add in like Jeff Bezos and, and, and Elon Musk to to really, you know, show that, of course, this could happen, that they are involved in solar geoengineering. And that would clearly like, I hope not a lot of people would want a future like that, right? And where, where billionaires continue to have the power that they do and they exist. And, you know, where, where we basically don't change anything about the fundamental societal, societal issues that we find. And we just spray aerosols because it helps a little bit with climate change. And that is this idea of entrenchment. And it's entrenchment because it actually reifies the current societal structures, the current injustices. And there are people who are warning against this from the perspective of SAI saying that this is just another brick in the wall, if you will. Right. And I while I take these arguments and I think they're important to consider, I don't think this is a necessity from um, researching something like solar geoengineering. We could also imagine that and this is where transformation comes in. If the right people working on this and if the, 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 the right movements getting involved can see that this is actually a way of also transforming society and moving away from old power structure, that solar geoengineering is just the, not even the tip of the iceberg, so just some little snowball lying on that iceberg and the more fundamental changes that are necessary. And that's, I think, what I try to get at with transformation is that solar geoengineering can really serve as a moral catalyst to make us aware of the value and the importance of nature and that now right now we are unfortunately in the situation where we actually have to actively engage with nature in order to deal with the problems that we have caused while this might not be an ideal solution uh, an ideal situation it's what we have to deal with right now which doesn't undermine the more fundamental issues of how we got here and the more historical and and broad sweeping societal problems, basically. Yeah, I feel like that is, we've come full circle now because that was one of the questions that we started off with is what what will the, the impact of these technologies be? Um, I think that is, that's it for today. Just for a moment, um, just not looking this, that far into the future, what kind of upcoming projects do you have for the next couple of months? Anything interesting you are working on? Uh, yeah, I mean, I hope it's interesting. I can't, I can't promise that. It's interesting to me. Uh, so right now I am starting to develop my third chapter of my dissertation, which will concern the, the question of systemic risks, actually. So uh, perceiving climate change and solar geoengineering as systemic risks, um, which basically entails they are risks that are complex by nature, that are um, nonlinear in their cause and effect, and so how can these kinds of systemic risks 
be expressed in a way that they can be useful for policymakers and for governance. So that's kind of what I'm trying to wrap my head around on a, on a theoretical level also, because systemic risk, I think, is in dire need of including ethical considerations. And that's what I'm trying to do. Let's see whether I achieve that. Um, but also the practical question of how do we deal with, with um, new and emerging technologies such as solar geo. So that's kind of what I'm, what I'm looking at right now. Yeah, that's exciting. And, and I mean, I will be following your work for the next couple of years. So I'm quite yeah, excited to see where this is going to lead. Thank you so much for your time. And that is the end of the show for today. So thank you to everyone who um, has listened to the podcast. And till next time, this is the Ethics of Socially Disruptive Technologies podcast. Thank you. Mm -hmm.